I'm relieved, you know, I, there's no frustration anymore. It's just me, I'm, I'm not here to make more money that I make, I'm making already. That's not the goal. The goal is really to just free my mind and, and think, okay, I'm a photographer and I, I made it as a photographer and I'm so fucking proud to make money with the image that I'm proud to produce. And not, I hate that, but it's kind of sometimes how I feel having to prostitute myself with some clients that I, to be honest, I don't really give a shit at all about. But the reality is like they have the big money and I have to accept job because that's what they built. So that's really what brought me into NFTs at first. Like me willing and, and wanting to, to sell and mint my work to people that are going to pay the right price for my work that they love. And then, you know, I said like I could mention community and obviously community came second, but now it's, it's so high in the list. Like community, when I started to get involved with the NFT photography community around September, a month later, I was like, oh my God, this community reminds me so much of the early days on Instagram when it was not about competition, when it was just a bunch of friends hanging around together, hiking the mountains, being so supportive with no competition, but just like pushing each other to the top. Talking about NFTs and that's Nifty. That's Nifty. All the great artists they come to this place to talk about the crypto space and that's Nifty. That's Nifty. That's Nifty. Your host for tonight's podcast are Tyler. Larry and Slime Sunday. Damn, that's nifty. Hello, hello. Johan, how's it going? Hello, guys. Very nice to meet you. Nice as well. Too, man. How are you guys doing? We're, we're doing great, man. Uh, we're, we're actually really excited uh, to chat with you here. Thanks uh, for carving out some time. Glad we're able to link. How was your, uh, your trip to Oh, trip to was... Uh interesting i'd say it was a, it was an assignment but i've just arrived in greece today actually uh, i wasn't planned it was a very last minute decision my parents have a disappointment and i thought okay i'm just gonna spend one week here just getting some work here so i don't know if you guys see but like we can see the sea behind me beautiful like, yeah. right there uh so yeah but the thing is uh i thought they had wi-fi at the apartment which they don't so i'm like hot spotting for my iphone and I'm not sure my plan is going to be good enough to do the whole podcast. I hope I have 50 gigabytes of plan, which I think should be enough, but we'll think it across. Yeah, man. Yeah, I think that's, that's going to be just part of the story. If we need to turn off video to save some space, too, let me know. I don't know how that works. I mean, I'd love to see you. We might have to do that at some point. If, like, I'm going to keep tracking uh, these, uh, the, the data usage uh and i'll make you a sign like this if i need to turn the video up right perfect perfect and, and this all stays in by the way so yeah yeah we just so who, who's who who's who so i'm i'm tommy on twitter my name is larry and this is tyler cool nice to meet you tyler and larry nice to meet you too man nice to meet you too um i think we want to start all the way back in like 2013 when you decided to pursue being a travel photographer Wait, is this sun already? Are we recording already? Oh, from the beginning, man. Yeah. Oh, my God. All right. I didn't get that. All right. Look, you see us? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So, 
So my, my background is, so I'm 35. Uh, I studied PR and uh, I graduated almost 10 years ago. That was 2013 when I got uh, my degree, a master's in, in PR. And uh, well, obviously I was 25 when I graduated and my goal was really to travel the world as soon as I would get my degree. And that kind of, uh, that idea came up when I was doing an internship in Paris uh, as part of my master's degree. And, you know, I was just like sitting in a, in a, in in an office basically behind my desk and, and I was just hating myself for doing that and I was like this is not the life I want I don't I didn't study five years to just sit behind a laptop all day in an office in an open space in Paris and just work all the time all day uh, so before potentially doing getting that I wanted at least to see the world so that's really how the idea came up and I thought, okay, I'm just going to start traveling. I'm 25. I have like this opportunity, opportunity to, to go on a, a working holiday visa that was called in Australia. So I booked a one-way ticket to Australia. I spent a year there, and that's really how everything started for me. Yeah. Is that tough being away from everyone you know for a, a whole year's time? Well, actually, I stayed two years, one year in Australia and then another year in New Zealand. And to be honest, um, it was not that tough uh, i mean it was it, i mean you know obviously i was a solo backpacker and i was meeting a lot of people on the road which definitely helps i had uh, some of my friends from belgium who came and visited me in australia and new zealand so that helped a lot as well i didn't see my family though for two years uh but i i, I guess that was okay uh i mean yeah i like my family i love i love them a lot but i'm also very able to just not see them for a few years potentially so they they had they were trying way more than I was about that to be honest. So I, I was fine, uh, but no, I mean you know one of the reasons I, I returned to Belgium after two years was actually to just see my family again and my friends again. Uh, and yeah, I wouldn't say it was a hard time. It was just I was really just focusing on my travels and on all the uh, encounters that I had during my travel, and, and also obviously very much focused on my own path and career as a photographer so i didn't really have any time to 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 miss my friends and family to be honest yeah and it feels like too that like that dive from your end is is really from like a coming from a place of passion right where, where you, you had to pursue what you're feeling um so at what point did you catch that feeling was it like all right this is what you know the next step in my journey needs to be and where it takes me it takes me what was kind of like the conviction point for you um that's funny you ask that because I think that's funny because I really remember that time I was so I was studying uh, in, doing PR and then every I was living in Brussels and my parents lived one hour away from Brussels so every weekend I would come back to my parents when I was a student mainly also because I was working at Pizza Hut to pay my studies during the weekend so I was just coming back to Liège where where my parents lived and I remember really being myself in my uh, teenage room at my parents after a long shift at Pizza Hut. It was like 11 midnight, 1 a.m. I don't remember how late it was. And I was just watching videos on YouTube about people traveling the world. And I, I was like, I really remember that time. It was probably 2011, 2012. And I thought, oh my God, one day I want to do that. One day I want to become an agile, uh, an agile photographer. This is what I really need to do. This is what I want to, to become one day. 
and, and I guess that's really how everything started. And from that time, I started buying books about travelers, reading the stories. I got uh, really inspired by a lot of travelers, specifically travelers who uh, did the around the world tour by hitchhiking only. And that's really what I wanted to do when I was 25. Uh, but yeah, I, I'd say this is really what started. Like the, the trigger was that that night watching videos on YouTube. Was it focused around you going to these places to photograph them? Or is it more just, I want to immerse myself in a culture and learn a new place. And the photography was just documenting that trip or how did, like, what, which one came first? So, um, to be honest, when I was in Australia, it wasn't really about photography. It was just about me being a traveler and backpacker and just discovering a new country and new culture. Uh, but because I was already taking photos when I was in Belgium, but in a total different style, I wasn't shooting travel. I was shooting uh, all sorts of uh, events, I'd say, like music festivals, a lot of music festivals, but also some weddings and these kind of things. Uh, so I had my background as a photographer already. I had my gear, which I brought with me to Australia. Uh, but the goal in Australia was just me traveling around, having some good time. And every time I would see like a beautiful landscape or any, anything really interesting to photograph, I would just take a photo of that. But that, that was definitely not the purpose, the goal. Uh, that photographic goal really came a year after, I'd say, when I was in New Zealand. So when I was in New Zealand a year later, uh, that's really where I discovered my passion for the great outdoors and for the wilderness and for the mountains specifically because I lived for, for seven months in a, in a town called Wanaka on the South Island of New Zealand. And, and I just fell in love with that place. And that place is really in the middle of the Southern Alps of New Zealand. And yeah, I would spend every single day shooting sunrise, sunset, going hiking in the, in the mountains uh, hanging around with, with a lot of friends, photographer friends as well, who told me a lot about photography, about uh, mastering the light in the outdoors. And, and from that day, early 2015, I was like, okay, I'm not going to travel just for the sake of being a traveler and traveling. From now on, I'm going to travel in order to, to photograph and take photos. That was really my, my goal. When you were stationed in uh, New Zealand, was that in conjunction with working with that tourism board, right, to promote tourism to the area? Correct, yes. So if we just go back to Australia, uh, you know, I was just starting to experiment with Instagram, which was just booming at the time. And, and again, being a backpacker, I had very little money. And, and my goal was to travel as much as I could on the longest period of time as possible with, a, with spending, spending a minimum amount of money. So my goal straight away, when I saw the opportunity with Instagram, I thought, okay, I should actually try to use my growing audience, which was very slow at the beginning, uh, which was very small at the beginning, trying to grow my audience on Instagram in order to get some partnerships, not in order to get paid for that. Again, I was not trying to pursue any kind of career or, or any professional goals. I was, my goal was just to gain some followers, to gain an audience, to get some kind of deals with hotels, tourism boards, uh, rental car companies, anything that would just get me access to free stuff. And, and with that, quickly in Australia, I started to, to, to partner with tourism boards. And I thought, okay, this is actually going to be a very great opportunity because Australia being one of, of the main pioneers about social media marketing, specifically on Instagram, uh, the whole of Australia and all the regional tourism boards in Australia were big time into working with, we were not even being called Instagrammers or influencers at the time. We were just like creatives on Instagram 
but we, we didn't have any name. And and they partnered a lot with me. They still wouldn't pay me, but at least they would host me for a few days for a week, pay for all kind of experiments and experience like a heli heli ride. I got my uh, my paddy scuba diving uh, license for free. Uh, all this kind of stuff that I wouldn't have been able to afford if I was just a backpacker. And then you're right. Back if we go one year later to New Zealand, that's really where I tried to pursue this this professional career. And I thought, okay, the tourism board of New Zealand, there's something to do with them. The tourism board of Wanaka, which was the regional tourism board, there's something to do with them. And and again, Instagram was was just booming a lot. Everyone was very excited about all these opportunities. The world Instagram was becoming something that people heard of. And and when I approached the tourism board of Wanaka, because I just had fell in love with the town, I invited them. I, I actually offered them a deal, which was, I want to spend the summer here, meaning just three months here. Uh, Wanaka being one of, one of the most expensive towns in New Zealand to live. I, I couldn't afford that. So I just asked them to host me for free, like offer me free accommodation for three months in a studio or something like this. And in return, I would just promote them every single day on my Instagram, which was growing. I think when I reached out to them, I had like around 50,000 followers at the time. And, and they had no real presence on Instagram, on social media at the time. So it was a really win-win situation. And so they agreed to that deal. And eventually I, I stayed seven months there. Yeah. And boosted their tourism like 14%, right? <laughs> oh yeah. You're right. You read that. Yeah. That was incredible yes. because uh, th- that was a study that came out a year after. And uh, I mean, it was not just thanks to me. It was like, uh, I mean, I, I really consulted them and advise them on working with more and more influencers and Instagrammers. And I don't know if you're familiar with the work of Chris Burkhardt, who is one of the main, most famous uh, landscape slash travel slash adventure photographer in the US and in the world, I'd say. Uh, Chris was one of the highest account on Instagram at the time. And, and I really pushed Tourism Wanaka to invite him for what we used to call Instameet. And so we invited a bunch of like 10 Instagrammers from all around the world to come and gather together for one week. And for that week, we would just do all the huge promotion about just Wanaka. So yes, I advised them for seven months and I, I assume I had my big part in that, uh, in that success because I was like promoting them every single day for, for seven months. But I think that Insta meet with all these influencers and Instagrammers who came for one week really, really helped as well. Yeah, it's, it's like kind of catching a vein with you know people that are, have the same motives, you know, trying to trying to grow yourself and 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 you know, kind of keep eyes and especially with growing technology at the time. And I, I think too. So like, was that at a point where you're like, okay, this is something like personally where I can like start to monetize? You know what I mean? Like like, okay, and now I can you know take this to the next level and and really kind of you know take this to like to the next professional level. Um, was it that, or was there anything after that? Any type of you know, specific client work where it's like, oh shit, like now I'm now here. Like it, it really went crescendo. So uh the the first three months I spent in New Zealand, I was just so focused on getting these free deals and growing my my Instagram. And then when I reached 50,000 followers, yes, I thought there would be a, a professional opportunity to actually make an income from that. But uh the thing is the clients came to me first and I was just trying to really before they came to me, I really was just trying to, to make a living, basically. You know, I'm going to share something that not, not so many people know about me. 
But uh, very early, I, I already had like these 50,000 followers on Instagram, and yet I was still not making an income. And then I received that so random email from that dude from Belgium, who like, I, I have no clue how he found me. He was like, hey, I'm looking for an Instagram campaign manager. Are you, would you be interested in working with me? It's like, yeah, yeah, you know, I know how to, to deal with Instagram. Should we jump on a call? So yeah, okay. So we jump on a call. Uh, the guy wants to stay anonymous. It's like, okay, so I'm building this uh, porn website and I'm really, I really need you to just help me with the marketing strategy on Instagram. Like, wait a minute. Like, you know, like Instagram was so, it still is. It's so strict about porn, like sharing porn on Instagram, obviously. So I was like, holy shit, how am I going to, pro- to promote a porn website on Instagram? But it's tough. I, yeah, it is tough. And honestly, I couldn't care less. I just saw that huge opportunity for me to make money. I was like, okay, that dude obviously is struggling big time to find a professional to help him with that. So I'm just going to charge him loads of money. And so eventually, that's what I did. So I accepted the deal for three months only. Because three months later, my first clients approached me for tourism jobs and, and for traffic jobs. So after three months, yeah, I had made, like, I don't know, maybe... I think I had made like $10,000 uh, plus I, I, I made him buy me the new iPhone at the time. All this kind of stuff, you know. And a few months later, I'm like, dude, like, sorry, but now I'm just focusing on my career as a photographer. We're done. And like, yeah, so that's it. <laughs> so yeah, I was, just, I was just, just trying to make, you know, just money because I had no money. I was just backpacking. I had no money at the time. Just the fact that you can name your price at that point, you know, I feel like anyone, anyone that like, kind of works in a freelance capacity like when, once you get that feeling like all right I, i'm about to name a price what the fuck is my price all right well, exactly it's gonna be worth it for this one it's, let's let's begin to hit this professional avenue on uh with a challenge but uh <laughs> i don't know that's a that's a good fucking onboarding story that's that's fucking hilarious <laughs> did you get noticed by nat geo for some of your work you did in australia was it that early on yeah, so uh, Nat Geo at the time on their Instagram, uh, it was Nat Geo Travel. They were running this, uh, I don't know, you, how would you call it? I guess takeover, but not really. But basically every Wednesday, they would share an image from someone who would have submitted that image using the hashtags. So every day when I would, I would post an image on Instagram, I would use the hashtag. It was Nat, hashtag Nat Geo Travel Pick hoping that one day they would just feature me. And, and one day they did. And, uh, and it was still very small on Instagram. It was an image from the 12 Apostles uh, between uh, on the Great Ocean Road close to Melbourne. And yeah, when they posted that photo on their multi-million follower account, it just blew up, man. It, uh, I think I, I, overnight I gained like 5,000 followers, but coming from like 1,000 followers, you know, it was like plus 500% uh, uh yeah plus 500 percent for me was just huge and i guess everything took up from that day i guess that's awesome man wow very lucky yeah very lucky Uh, so so like i'm also curious too like 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 the series on that you have on super air highlands like we're we're looking at your work and now this is kind of more of like a you know bigger picture perspective but like when I, when I first came across your profile and, and kind of like saw what you do and the stuff that you create and like your photography is really truly stunning and, and like the stuff that you mint on super and we're obviously, you know, a, a, an NFT focused podcast, but like the art, 
behind it is is always what's driving the conversation. Um, but like your your work brings eyes to it. And specifically on that Highlands project, like the based in Iceland, like what is like the technical process behind creating those shots? Because there's so much to look at and so much perspective to be kind of interpreted and just break it down. Give me the recipe. And they do what, look what, what is it? It's wild yeah. how much they look like paint on a mountain. They really do. Thanks. Well, all credit goes to Iceland on that one, really, because I don't know, I don't know if you guys been there, but when you go to Icelandic Highlands, that's really what struck me the first time I went there. I really thought I was inside a painting. It was surreal. It was like, oh my God, this, this is just unreal how everything looks like a painting here. And so obviously I really got inspired a lot by those landscapes and I went multiple, uh, multiple times back again and again uh, at different seasons of the year, just trying to capture those landscapes and from, from the ground, using a drone, uh, flying from a, from a plane, you know, all, all sort of techniques. And again, I mean, I would love to tell you that it's the result of like hundreds of hours of studying. But the thing is, it's not. I mean, yeah, I've been there multiple times, but the scenery there is just so good that anyone, I guess, would make a great photo of, of the Icelandic Highlands. Um, to my credit, though, is like, yes, I've, I've been very perseverant. Do you say that? Uh, like trying again and again and again, because the reality is the weather in Iceland is terrible and completely unpredictable. And I wouldn't be, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't be able to tell you how many times I had booked a plane, uh, a flight, a scenic flight plane, and it was canceled like literally 30 minutes before taking off, just because the weather was just completely too bad. And, you know, I don't know if you guys saw the news that happened. It was last uh, January or February, I don't remember now. But uh, a very famous pilot in Iceland with a group of three tourists, they crashed. Uh, and the photo, the fourth photo of my series, Blue Veins, was shot with that pilot, which came, we really became friends. And, uh, and he was one of the most serious and the most professional and most respected pilots in Iceland. And he would always tell me, sorry, man, but I don't take the risk. Like the weather is going to be crap. We, 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 we're not going. And obviously every time I was like, dude, are you, are you really serious? Because I'm like, I'm looking at the weather forecast and it says like, it's going to be not that bad. It was like, no, no, no. I know, I know that country. I know the weather. We're not going. And the thing is, I don't know what happened. I don't know if the, it was because of the weather. I don't know if it was because of some mechanic issues, but they went for the last time and they crashed in, into a lake and they, they, all, they all died, unfortunately. So, oh, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, the weather in Iceland can be very tough, very dangerous. And yeah, I've been there, I don't know, about 10 times in Iceland. Uh, and, and you never know with how many photos you're going to, you're going to come back home because it's all about the weather eventually. So that, like you, you kind of answered one of the questions I had, but like the, the decision-making process between like how you're capturing a shot between like a drone shot, a ground shot and like, a, you know, chartering a, you know, a, a quick flight or just to, you know, capture what you're looking for like what's the decision-making process into like, are, do you go out there and like, these are the three aspects I'm trying to get like for specifically for that, I guess, like what was kind of that decision-making process? 
so if we take that area, that specific area in the highlands, which is called Landman and Logar, uh, which from that five shots, five image series uh, of Manon Super Rare, I think, if I'm not mistaken, there are three images. Yeah, there are three images from that specific area. Uh, that area is kind of remote and you wouldn't just go there for a couple of hours. You would usually go there for mainly at least a whole day, if not like a couple of days, and you just camp there. And, and every time I went there, it was for a couple of days. And usually because you spend so many hours there, what I usually do is just I hike around and I scout and I try to really immerse myself with the whole, uh, within the whole landscape. Try trying to understand the light because again, obviously depending on what month you're going in, in, the, in the year, the light's gonna be completely different, specifically because of uh, you know, being so high in latitude, if you go in the summer, you have the midnight sun. If you go very late in the year, around October, just before the first snowfall comes, uh, you really have uh, like sunset is very, very, very late, uh, very early, sorry, and sun sunrise is very, very late. So depending on when you go, everything changes. So what I usually do is just, I scout around by foot and I would hike a couple of mountains, just trying to find some interesting angles and perspective. And every time I would scout, I would take photographs, always. I always have my gear with me. Uh, and then what I do is if I see really something interesting from the ground, usually me being on top of a mountain and you would see like a nice little valley or it's not really a valley in that, in that area because the whole area is kind of a valley, but you would have two peaks and in between two peaks, yeah, you, I would call them a, a, a valley. Uh, I would just be too curious to see what, how it would look like from, from, a, from the air. So I would just send out the drone just to have a quick look. And, and uh, most of the time, yeah, drone is great, but I don't know, I'm really not a good drone pilot and uh, I'm very scared. I don't know why, but I'm always super scared about my gear and my drone and crashing it. When I see yeah, like you don't want to wreck that. No, I really don't. But I have so many friends that don't give a crap of that. They just, they just like go crazy. They send the drone, yeah, so high, so far away, and they, you know, if they lose it or they crash it, whatever. But I'm not that kind of guy. So I would rather spend like I don't know four, five, six hundred dollars on the scenic flight just to make sure like I'm not going to crash my drone. But also, also the, I mean. The drone, it's really wide usually, you know, like when you shoot drone, the lens is, uh, I actually don't really know the, the focal length of the drone. I would say it's, it's probably around 24, between 24 and 35 mil. So it's quite wide. Uh, but when I've, I'm in a plane, I would most of the time shoot with my 20 to, uh, 24 to 70 mil, sometime even with my 70 to 200, which really will allow me to go very close to some patterns and some detail. And so it's really a mix of the three. I wouldn't be able to tell you when I go there, I'm going to focus more on ground shot rather than drone shot or, or L shot. It's actually trying to, to take everything. And the reality is, yeah, that series, uh, out of the five images, there's four which have been taken from the air, but I have so many, so many, so many images that I consider including them in that series that I have been shot from the ground as well. It's just like, I just wanted to make some cohesion within the whole five shot series. And yeah, eventually I just like curated that, those, four, those four aerial ones. But I'd love, I'd love to show you the, the ground one as well. I would like to see those too. 
I wonder mm-hmm. if, if the uh, the pilots ever give you any pointers where they're like, oh, I know a cool spot. Let's fly over here. Yeah, uh, of course. The pilots, they, they know for sure because they, they, they're getting so many, uh, so many photographers with them uh, on flights. So for sure they know. Again, the sad reality is uh, even if they want to bring you and show you to a specific point, it's going to be weather dependent always. So I've so many times I've been in a plane where we were allowed to fly and I would tell the pilot, I want to see that. Like, because I've seen that before and I know that I really want to photograph, for example, those, those rivers. And he would just most of the time always tell me, yeah, I know where they are. He knows by heart exactly where they are. But like, sorry, but look at the sky there. It's like dark, there is blue. So we're going to go there. And so you just don't have any choice. You just go, you just follow the expert here. That's fair. It, I, I think kind of burying the lead there too is like something we're always curious about, like people that come, you know, from your background of a more traditional, um, you know, type of professional career um, in a discovering NFTs, like from your end, what was the, what was the discovery for you? And what was the thought process? Because I mean, just for some, some context, we're a couple of guys that, you know, were, weren't crypto native at all kind of had to learn it late 2020 and and you know learn the technology and got onboarded you know through, through from like the art side but um because what was your onboarding and just kind of overall thoughts on when you discovered or just like understood the concept no yeah it's it's a great question because um so i i first heard of nfts in february last year uh 2021 and and I was kind of septic at the at the beginning, just because I, I didn't really understand what they were and what would be the the utility for that. And I really just took the time to really educate myself for a long time, like literally for at least, I mean, depending on what, what we're talking about, like, like, for example, before minting anything, I waited for 11 months. Before buying my first NFT, I waited for six months. And before actually reaching out to friends like i'm sure you guys know katsimart for example she's a friend of mine we've known for six years together uh and i was seeing her being very active on twitter and it was obvious that she was about to mean something so i reached out to her this this time of the year last year in may just before she minted something on super i I told her hey kat I, i i see you being so active on twitter obviously you're very much into nft or you're interested so Let's jump on the call and discuss this. So, you know, it's it was really about educating myself, getting to understand the concept, and also making sure this was the right thing for me. Because it could have been not, you know. And what really brought me and uh, got me in is, so first, before I would say the community, which came later, it was really about the opportunity for me and a lot, if not all artists, to uh, finally be free from the client work and from the, yeah, let's call it the client work. So the reality is, if I'm going to speak for me here, um, over the last five, six years, most of my income will come from jobs that don't really excite me. And by that, I mean, you know, we were talking about a specific country, which I'm not. Oh, yeah. I, you guys were recording right where we started. So we can. So please don't say, please, don't, please <laughs> stop that about the fact that it was shitty. 
but yeah, you know, yeah, right, 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 right. Yeah. yeah, that'll be out easily. Okay, cool. Because yeah, that could be tricky. I don't even know if you work if you guys were recording, but yeah, you, you know, like typically, typically this kind of thing. Yeah, I get to travel and I get to photograph in uh, while traveling for clients. But at the end of the day, uh, this is really everything that frustrates me when traveling because you know that trip was just a four-day trip. And the itinerary is set and defined by the client. And they just tell you, we want you to shoot that, 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 that. And you have literally 10 minutes per location. And they don't give a shit about how good the light is. So, you know, they don't care at all. They just want you to shoot and that's it. And that, for me, is the most frustrating thing ever. And at the end of the day, I cannot produce good content, image that I'm proud of. It's impossible. You know, if we talk about about Iceland, I went there 10 times at least to produce the body of work that I'm very proud of. If we take my body of work from New Zealand, I spent a whole year in the country to produce that body of work. But when you send me three or four days in a country with big money, but then the other day, it's impossible for me to, to produce good quality work. So my income of the last six, seven years has come, I would say 70 to 80%, mainly from this kind of gigs. The remaining 20, 30% would come from things that I actually love to shoot, meaning clients that would uh, reach out to me to license image that I've seen on my, on my website, on my Instagram, image that I'm really proud of. They would reach out to me to license that body of work. Uh, or it would be me selling prints or selling books or doing all, also, all sort of other, other things. You know, I do online courses and this kind of stuff. What I'm trying to say here is that when I heard of NFTs, Obviously, I'm not going to mint images that I'm not proud of or images that I kind of I feel like, mm, you know, I'm just going to mint the absolute best creme de la creme of my work. And to me, if eventually I can make the same amount of money that I made from or thanks to, to these clients that I'm, I don't really care about, but from the body of work that I actually love to produce, then I'm relieved, you know. I, there's no frustration anymore. It's just me. I'm, I'm not here to make more money that I make. I'm making already. That's not the goal. The goal is really to just free my mind and and think. Okay, I'm a photographer and I I made it as a photographer and I'm so fucking proud to make money with the image that I'm proud to produce and not. I hate that, but it's kind of sometimes how I feel having to prostitute myself for some clients that I, to be honest, I don't really give a shit at all about. But the reality is like they have the big money and I have to accept job because that's what pay bills. So that's really what brought me into NFTs at first. Like me willing and, and wanting to, to sell and mint my work to people that are going to pay the right price for, the, for my work that they love. And then, you know, I said like I could mention community and obviously community came second, but now it's, it's so high in the list. Like community when I started to get involved with the NFT photography community around September, a month later, I was like, oh my God, this community reminds me so much of the early days on Instagram when it was not about competition, when it was just a bunch of friends hanging around together, hiking the mountains, being so supportive with no competition, but just like pushing each other to the top. And to be honest, I feel like the community, the mood has changed quite a bit over the last two, three months since we're in a bear market. But fall, winter 2021, the community was insanely positively good. And I just loved it so much. Yeah, I think that's kind of the hook that brought us in as well, knowing that 
know, there's a lot of creatives out there that create content for, you know, large corporations, things that they're just kind of assigned and kind of spit out, you know, however they need to. But NFTs does give them a way to produce the art that they wanted to create in the first place. So I think it just, it extends the culture further into let's see what these creative people can do when they're not tied down to a larger entity who's directing the art, you know? So it's kind of more, it's a, it's a freeing thing. Absolutely. I fully agree with you. And, um, and I'm, I'm really, really excited to see <laughs> the reality is, yeah, I think not everyone is going to make it because not everyone has the right mood for it or, or not everyone is patient enough to make it. That's another reality. And it's going to be so interesting to watch that bear market, how it's going to, how it's going to change and how it's going to affect a lot of artists and potentially collectors, I guess, as well, collectors and investors. But I'm most particularly interested in seeing how the artists are going to stay but yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's very exciting. To me, I see that, I saw that and I still see that is a huge revolution for artists. This is to me a, a basically an artistic revolution that we are living right now that can be compared to, I guess, the Renaissance. I mean, it's, it's a whole new thing that is going to change for artists. And if what's, what I have in mind is going to happen, meaning like, artists from all genres from all sorts of art are gonna make are gonna be able to basically make a decent living and because if we watch at the at the current situation of most of the artists all over the planet i would say that 99 percent of them are struggling big time and they're all being seen by the rest of the society as inferior most of the time, you know, we're not talking about the, the huge music stars and the most famous painters and all, you know, all these big guys that we all know. We're talking here about the 99% of the rest of the artists who are making a living very, very difficultly. And most of the time, you know, when I told my, my, my parents that I wanted to become a photographer, they were not excited at the, at the beginning. None, no one in my family was excited about me trying to make a living out of my photography. No one until I made it thanks to Instagram. And, and that's everyone became proud of it. like, Oh my God, you have like half a million followers on Instagram. You made it blah, 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 because there's proof. But the reality is like, until you make it, there's not going to be a single one who is going to see you as the a doctor or a lawyer or uh, a CEO. They're just going to see you as someone who is always going to struggle to make a living. Because that's unfortunately the sad reality for most of the artists here. So that's why I'm very excited to see how, how this will unfold. And, and I truly believe this is going to be an artistic revolution. We'll I, see. No, and I think too, like just bringing the, um, the angle of like the, the bigger picture, you know, when, when you're having these types of conversations, it's like truly so early in um, like just the overall kind of grasp this could have in terms of the, the technology the ideas the creators that it can kind of bring in um you know and to, and to you know hear it echoed obviously from uh someone like yourself is cool to hear just because you know you have to be patient when you're onboarding too you have to kind of really read the room and make sure you understand you know kind of how this works where you know there's there's ups and downs and it's just kind of no one can predict it right now 
it, it's just something that's going to grow and you can only learn from by observing. Um, and that goes for everyone, collectors, builders, creators, um, artists. And I don't know. It's just uh, so much that can be kind of utilized for everyone. And the real utility is like the artist's ability to create what they want and have the freedom to do it. Kind of like what Tyler said earlier, but like you could probably mint all the time. It sounds like you're pretty strict on what you put out there. Um, like at what point do you realize that this is kind of how I'm going to cure it myself? That's a good question because, you know, just before you asked that question, I was just going to interrupt and tell you, we all still experimenting every single day. There's no, there's no, uh, standard. There's no truth right now in the space we're all experimenting and you know we, we're seeing this new trend of editions i mean there was kind of a trend a few months ago and then it went down and then everyone is doing editions again and and i really see that as a as a really positive way to approach uh nfts for in the space for artists um and you know when i entered the space the, the space when i was on super rare um, when I, I was accepted, I got accepted on the Super Rare. Well, first, you know, between the time I really got involved in the space to the time I minted, it, it were like three or four months that uh, uh, that was spent. But my goal was, I don't want to mint anything until I'm being accepted on the Super Rare. And I was like, I, I saw the NFT summer happening last last year. I saw all of my friends, most of my friends coming from Instagram, minting. Uh, like a huge collection on OpenSea because that was the trend at the time. And I was like, no, I'm not gonna do that because I really want to focus on the, squ the scarcity aspect of my, of, uh, of my strategy here. And, and I really wanna go very slowly. So that's what I did when I got on Super Rare and I minted like this series of five. And the goal really was, uh, yeah, scarcity, scarcity, I still believe firmly in scarcity. Uh, and I guess probably I would have minted something new already a month or two ago if the collection had sold out. I was like, I, I'm really not in a hurry. But at the same time, I feel like uh, a lot of collectors would pay attention to that if I were to mint a new collection or just a new, a new one of one saying, wait, you still have like two, two uh, remaining unsold pieces out of your five image collection. Uh, maybe there's something wrong here. So yeah, that's definitely... Uh, I wouldn't say help, but that definitely play, plays part of the, of the fact that I haven't minted ever since. But right now, I mean, I'm like, yeah, I'm ready. I want to mint something new. Uh, so I'm going to have a different approach. I'm still not sure which one is going to come first. I'm definitely considering additions. Uh, but again, I would rather wait until I have some kind of deal with a nifty gateway to run an edition rather than just browsing an edition on OpenSea. Um, I'm really, you know, everything I do, everything I mint, perhaps it's completely wrong because I, I, I see a lot of people doing complete opposite that what I have in mind and they're killing it. But maybe I'm just overthinking it. But the reality is I'm really super cautious of every single thing that I do. So I was one of the very first photographers to mint on Super Air on my own smart contract. And there was no way I would ever mint on Super Air until they came out with that Super Rare, so uh, with that custom smart contract thing, which they only did uh, early November. Uh, because to me, it makes absolutely no sense for an artist to mint on a, on a shared smart contract. And so that's why I waited also so long until they did that. And then now I'm thinking, you know, I, I see a lot of people doing editions 
under 1155 contract, which to me, I wouldn't say it doesn't make any sense, but it's very dangerous in the fact that, again, I try to always compare to the physical world and the traditional world. And the reality is, yeah, editions are great, uh, but editions are great if you, if you really think carefully. And again, I'm not saying that there's one thing better than another one. I will never tell any artist you shouldn't do that. But in my personal case, I know that, you know, when you look at the traditional, smart, uh, traditional art world, you can buy an edition print from me and that print is going to be numbered. You can choose to buy the number one out of an edition of 10. You can choose to buy actually the number 10 out of an edition of 10. You can choose depending on the availability, obviously. But on an 1155 contract, you cannot choose because they're actually not numbered. They're all the same. They're actually fungible. They're not NFTs. They are fungible pieces they actually buy. You know? Right. So, so the thing is, yeah, I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying that I don't know where this space is going to be in six months or in one year or in 10 years from now. And I just want to play very carefully and take any chance that I get to be on the right side when eventually everything comes standardized, which I believe it's, it becomes eventually. There's going to be a proper standard NFT market in two, three, five, ten 10 years from now. And yeah, potentially some people will be considered as like, yeah, it was like a new time mistake and, you know, that happened. But at the end of the day, I don't want to have like some of my body of work, some of my pieces out there in the wild on the blockchain with just no sense. And to me, the fact that if you mint an NFT, it has to be non-fungible. Otherwise, what's the point, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, so, you know, I could do an edition. If I do an edition, it would probably be on, on 1721. Uh, I would rather do that on Nifty Getaway, obviously for the premium aspect of it, uh, but we'll see, uh, we're still talking. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm considering a lot of things, a lot of options. I have a lot of ideas in mind. At this stage, I, I just wish and I just hope that some, someone or two collectors will just sell out my collection so I can really focus on the next thing because that's a reality, unfortunately. And again, you know, I, again, I know that I say that a lot, but when I compare to the traditional world, people, usually artists, they're not minting every single week or every single month. Like you usually have one exhibit per year or potentially per every five years. And you just launch a body of work of like 20, 30 images and you're gonna wait until they sell. And if they don't sell, yeah, you can focus on a new exhibition and then both exhibition will be available on sale, but you just do one thing at a time, you know? And I believe, you know, there's a lot of things that I hate about the traditional world. There's a lot of things that I absolutely am thrilled about, about the NFT world. But at the end of the day, these two spaces have to match somehow because the foundation is the same and, and the investors and the collectors are going to be potentially the same at some point. So you have to also learn from that for sure. And, and, and I, hear, I hear so many people saying that uh, when they launch a collection, they never talk about that as uh, one of one. You know, people would say, I'm into the one of one or I'm into the collection. But dude, your collection is a collection of one of one. It's not because it's, it's like a collection of like 30 pieces that it suddenly is not one of one. They're all individual one of ones. Yeah, they're part of a collection, 
But at the end of the day, a one of one is just a single edition. And, and you know, all these things, yeah, it doesn't really matter for most of the people or they don't really take the time to think because maybe they don't even consider thinking. I don't know. But to me, it's so important. It, everything has to be carefully thought over. It's like, okay, if I want to mint an edition, how many? Is it going to be really, does it make sense to mint an edition of 200? Because if I do an edition of 200 physical, then it's not art to me. I mean, legally speaking, here in Belgium, uh, for fiscal reason, for fiscal reason, it is defined that any edition above 30 is not considered art anymore. Yeah, of course, what you sell is still art, but for the VAT, you cannot, look, basically, if, if I sell an edition of 31, I have to charge you 20, 21% VAT. But if I sell you an edition of 30, max 30, then I'm going to charge you only 6% of VAT because it becomes art. If it's above 30 edition, it's not art anymore. It's just like posters, basically, you know? Oh. So to me, yeah, that's crazy, right? That's, so a, that's a new fact. This, that's cool. Well, it's only in Belgium and France. I have no clue about the law in other countries, but I just know that for Belgium and France, at least. They seem to be the leading edge there on how to <laughs> traditional art world stuff, right? I mean, if, honestly, yeah, it's, um, as I said, we're all experimenting. And, and with that experiment, a lot of people are going to make mistakes. I might make mistakes as well. I'm saying that I'm, I'm in the right. But eventually, it's with those mistakes that we're going to learn and we're going to evolve in the better, for the better. Uh, but yeah, I'm really cautious with everything I do. I'm, I'm a very perfectionist. So I'd rather see everyone make mistakes for me to learn from them that's and then adapt and adapt in a better way. Yes. Uh, but I'm not saying that's the best thing to do, though, because usually I'm, I'm late in the party for that. <laughs> yeah well it's just like the, it goes back to the, the the creative freedom to choose to what you want to do like you have the ability to choose and make those decisions so kind of i mean at the crux of it that's that's the most important thing um you have another book lined up oh, oh my god my publisher is is really pushing me to get a new book lined up <laughs> the reality is no um the rate is no not at this stage i would love though uh, but you know, like that, that first book, it was, well, it was first, it was very, uh, impromptu, meaning like I just went on that trip Easy and then Europe. during that trip, I thought peaks of Europe. Yeah. And that was so, impromptu. sorry, <laughs> that was impromptu. Just a nice, no, peaks of, peaks of Europe was an impromptu, but the idea of making it a book was oh, like, okay. completely impromptu. Like it, the idea of making it a book came during the trip, actually. Uh, and it just made sense. So, you know, like, for example, two years after Peaks of Europe, I spent two months road tripping in Africa. And after that trip, my publisher calls me and say, hey, you want to do, a, you want to make a book about Africa? And I was like, there's no way I cannot, I, I cannot make a book about Africa because what I did was just me as a traveler with my girlfriend just being basically almost on holiday in Africa and me trying to master the art of wildlife photography. So I wouldn't be even able to tell you there's a good documentary story to put in a book. Yeah, I have great images, but it's just going to be like a series of like completely not unrelated images in a book, which, you know, to me, making a book is like a big deal. It's not just 
put all great images together and just print a book. It's my it's African an vacation. Yeah. Of, dude. <laughs> and it's it's the same for exhibition, and it actually is the same for NFT series. And that's probably why I am so careful of what I mean, because and that was a great exercise for me actually to join the NFT space. Is it really gives you new eyes on how you should curate your work. And I have an archive of, I don't know, 300,000 images. And yet I have only minted five images so far. Right, exactly. You know? So and, and, any collector out there, you're choosing, you're picking your oh, ones, you know? Because I want them to be crazy. If I want to have them to, 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 to go together very well, I want them to tell a story. I, I just don't want to throw out my most likable or my most inseparable images. You know, I could, I have images that would get way more likes on Instagram than the one from Halen did. But yeah, they would get likes individually. Just you post one and then you post another one, but together they don't match because it's just not the same story. It's not the same. So it's really why I'm trying to be so, so cautious of, of how I create my work which is to me the hardest part of my job is curation curation and editing my own work oh my god it's unbelievably hard because again because i'm just too perfectionist i guess and in curation i love curation i create a lot of work from other artists i am myself a huge collector for of photo books so I, I like buy photo books every day almost so you know curation is really part of me but when it comes to my own work uh it's really hard because I'm, I'm very hard on myself, I guess. Well, that's what produces such great work, you know, the, the critical part of choosing, you know, and to keep that in the artist's hands instead of some corporation is just awesome. Thanks, yeah, you're right. It's, uh, it's again, that's something very new and exciting about this space is, is to see like artists being able to create their own work directly without no third party. Uh, I'm not saying that professional curators are useless. They are very important, but we've seen in the traditional space, a lot of gatekeeping happening because of curators, because of gallerists. Um, and to me, again, that's a huge revolution. You know, another story I can give you is with my amount of followers on Instagram, I quickly went to a point where I just had too many followers to be considered as an artist. So mm -hmm. I, I, I noticed that if you have like less than 10,000 followers, that's great. You're an artist, dude. Like you're struggling. <laughs> right, it goes <laughs> so, back to the struggle part, right. You're back to the struggle. You're struggling. Your art is completely un not understandable. Like people, you know, it's, 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 the, it's the whole mind thing of the artist. And you're an artist and you're going to be in galleries and you're going to sell millions. If you are between 10 and 20,000 followers on Instagram, yeah, they, they will consider you. And it might mean that you're an emerging artist or like you almost made it, but they will consider you. But I, I, I can assure you that when you pass that point of like 50,000 followers, and I'm saying, I'm not gonna talk for 100% of the artists because there are great examples that will uh, be, uh, that will not go with my story, but they're very, very, um, they're a minority. But when you pass that point of 50,000 followers, most of the freaking time, 
iconographs working in magazines or galleries to creators, they will look at your work on Instagram because the rate is 100% of them, they will look at your work first on Instagram. They're not going to look at your portfolio. They're not going to look at your website first. They're all going to look at your Instagram first. And that's fine. But as soon as they see 50,000 plus, a million, two million, they just all the time going to see, wait, you're an artist, you're an Instagrammer, you're an influencer. All the fucking time, man. And I've been so many times like knocked out from gallery because just because of that. I, my very first exhibition that I had in, uh, in Brussels, that was 2016. Uh, my parents, they knew some gallerist owner in Paris and they invited him. But they were not friends, they're just like friend of a friend, you know. And the gallerist comes and I didn't have the chance to meet him personally, but he just spent like a couple of uh, times with my parents there at the, at the exhibition. And they just told him, I'm sorry, but this is not art. This is just internet image. And it was like, oh my God, so my parents told me that. And it, it's exactly what I'm saying. It's like, I'm not saying that my body of work from that time was outstanding. I'm not saying like, yeah, it could be considered as internet images or Instagram images or whatever. But my point here is like, I just regret that gatekeepers or curators or this traditionalist people will be the only one to define what is art and what is not. Because at the end of the day, if people like you, if people like my parents, if people like fucking anyone from the very time that they're gonna love your work, they will decide that it's great work. I might not like that, you might not like that, but if there's some people in the world that will like what they see, then it's enough to be called art, in my opinion. And it's not so, it's not, yeah, it's not because you're less educated than a curator that you are that you don't deserve to be calling something art or not. And that's everything that I hate about the traditional word. And that's that has been one of my personal fights. Uh, and that's why I'm so, so happy and thrilled about the NFT space is because those curators, those third party, they will be there. I'm sure they will come. They will join. They will be there at some point. But right now, they're not there. And there's a chance for a lot of emerging artists, for a lot of people who have been rejected from these traditional industries to just make a name right now. And the rate is like, I'm sure, I haven't actually talked to her about that, but I'm sure that Kat Simard, she was probably in the same stage that I was towards galleries. I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if she tells me that she's been rejected from galleries and, and she's been bullish, uh, bullied by, for her work and her composites until she fucking made it to Sotheby's. And now there's not going to be a single one curator who's going to tell her your work is shit, your work is not art because she made it to Sotheby's, you know? And that's just thanks to the NFT space. So I'm, I'm so freaking excited for that. I think we talk about this a lot where it's like, everyone's kind of a curator. You know, we all have this decentralized power of following an account on Instagram and validating that as something that I enjoy to look at, you know, and it's like, there's no need for this whole, like maybe there is a small need of someone saying, you know, there's, this is high-end fine art or something based on all of these traditional aspects of art and it fits all these categories. But I like the power in the people, right? Where it's like, no, we all collectively agree that we like this more than this. So like, I, I think we're moving in that direction where we have more of the power. 
I agree. I agree. And, and at the end of the day, that's really, to me, that's really the Web3 spirit, isn't it? We're all talking about the Web3, Web3, Web3. What is really Web3? But at the end of the day, Web3 is controlled and owned by the people, by the community. So everyone should be able to say, this is what I think it is. And so if I want to call this art, then it's art. And, and that's enough. Like we don't need to have the opinion of some kind of like super educated university curator. Because at the end of the day, yeah, if I think that is art and I want to have that piece of art on my wall or on my gallery or on cyber gallery, whatever, that's enough. You know, if you have a personal connection with that piece of art and with the artist, well, that's it. We, why look further? It's enough. Yeah, that's a perfect way to, do, to, to, to boil it down. Totally. Um, that, that really resonated with me. Uh, and I don't know, I think it's a perspective a lot of people need to at least grasp that, you know, you're in control, whoever it is, you know, you know, you kind of have a choice to perceive things how you want. Um, but dude, this has been great, man. I like, like, uh, we totally appreciate you taking this time with us. And I mean, totally appreciate your phone taking the uh, hotspot. Yeah, us. the I, data, I, I, the data <laughs> plan works. <laughs> I'm so scared to see how many gigabytes I've killed. Yeah, we see, it was we so worth it anyway. There's smoke coming in from the side and it's <laughs> burning it down. It was so worth it anyway. So even if I killed my whole plan, let's, I just want to, I'm so curious though. It, it doesn't refresh, but oh, I only wasted like one gigabyte. That's fine. Oh, that's, that's nothing. Okay, perfect. One gigabyte. That's right, dude. Right. I remember the first time I used a hotspot and I was like, whoa, my phone just died. It's, it's like, just what am I doing? Like, yeah. <laughs> that was quick. Um, no. Last question before we let you go. you have any crazy stories from backpacking where like just something outrageous happened or you met some really cool people or anything? Oh my God. I would love to tell you yes, but I, I don't know. I'm, as I said, I'm, I'm a cautious guy, guy right? You yeah, understood yeah. that from that. So space. I don't know. I, I was I was hitchhiking in, in Tasmania and Australia, and and in Australia I don't know. I, I never watched that movie. I don't even know what the name is again. But in Australia, there's like this movie that scared every every kid when like kid born in the seventies or eighties or whatever. It's like a movie about uh, some serial killer who's gonna kill every hitchhiker. And every time you would say to someone in Australia, "I'm gonna hitchhike," they're gonna tell you about that freaking movie. Like saying, you're going to die. There's like serial killers. Like, oh my God, this is like going to be very sketchy. But yeah, no, I went to Tassie, like hitchhiked for three weeks, fine. And then I wanted to hitchhike from Melbourne to, uh, no, from uh, Adelaide to Perth, which is like that portion of desert in Australia, which is called the Nullarbor, uh, because it's super dry, no, no trees, nothing. And it's like so freaking long. I think it would have taken me I guess a week to cross everything by hitchhiking. So I was kind of, I was, no, honestly, I was thrilled, not really worried at all, but my mom was. So when I told her on the phone, I'm going to hitchhike that portion of Australia. So like, there's no way you hitchhike that. It's impossible. I'm going to pay you the train ticket and you're going to just jump on, tra on the train and you're going to go to Perth by, by train. So uh, there was no way for my mom to pay anything for me, but I kind of liked the idea of the train. And so I, I Googled the train. It was like, oh, cool. That's like a three-day journey, train journey. It was very exciting. 
And, you know, I've always wanted to go uh, to do the, the Trans-Siberian train, but never had a chance. It was kind of my chance to do that. Uh, but it was very pricey. So I reached out to the company, the train company. It's like, I'm, uh, you know, I was just starting. I didn't really have an Instagram at the time, but I was blogging on a travel website. Like, hey, I'd love to write a piece about my, my experience with you in the train. Would you, get, would you guys get me here, like for free? Uh, it's like, yeah, yeah, of course. We'll get you a first class access to the three-star restaurant. Uh, you know, you're gonna, oh. you're gonna love it. The, the train ticket was worth like $5,000. They got it me for free. It was like, oh my God. So eventually just because my mom freaked out for me to hitchhike the Naravo, I ended up in a train, like complete, like everything for free. Had the best food of my life, obviously. Uh, thanks, mom. That's awesome. It's yeah. Like, it's like, <laughs> That's what being cautious, how, how being cautious pays off, you know? <laughs> yeah, you can make the opposite movie. Of, uh, exactly. Of it. <laughs> God, it's hero killing. Like, <laughs> yeah, got on a train. Fine. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Did COVID slow you down doing any of your travel photography? Were you like locked down in, in what country? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It really did. Uh, business, re- business-wise, obviously everything shut down. I had no contract uh, on assignment, travel assignment at least. Uh, so everything shut down. So I was lucky enough to be in Belgium, where, sorry, where we have a, gr- a very, very good social uh, security policy. So I think I think they were paying me like two and a half thousand dollars euros per month, just because. Uh, of how good Belgium is for that. So that was wow. very good. Uh, but, you know, I managed to get some uh, licensing deals and uh, I have this long-term relationship with Toyota for which I'm an ambassador. So they were still paying me as well, which was great. Uh, but apart from that, yeah, no, no travel uh, whatsoever. The first travel came... So my last travel before COVID was just a week or two before lockdown. I was on assignment for uh, an NGO, Médecins Sans Frontières, uh, in Haiti which kind of changed my life. And, and after, when I came back from that assignment, I was like, okay, from now on, I'm just going to do that. You know, I was like, I'm just going to shoot for NGOs and, uh, and help people. That was like, I'm going to do that. And I want to travel in all very uh, poor countries and, uh, and do what I can to help and document that. And then a week after COVID happened, uh, so obviously everything shut down. And I was like, yeah, uh, kind of struggling to get in contact within the NGOs and you know, it's, everything was very hard. And so the next trip between that in February 2020, the next trip on assignment was only in June 2021. So a year and a half almost later, which was in Greece, actually. So that was, uh, uh, yeah, in Greece for the tourism board. Uh, and yeah, to be honest, the, the whole NGO stuff, I just got so busy with personal new things. So 2021, I tried to launch my own YouTube channel and my own podcast and my own blah, blah, blah. And then NFT came up and I was like, okay, I'm just so busy to the point like I, I started to travel much less. Specifically this year, 2022, I've, I've, traveled, I've barely traveled because of the whole NFT and specifically my new project NFT photographers that I launched last December that I've been just focused full time on this for the last four months. Uh, and, and yeah, Life got in the way and I never really reached out again to these NGOs. I would love to do so uh, eventually. Uh, so I think I'm just going to give myself an extra six months to see where this startup NFT photographers goes. Uh, if, it's, uh, if, it's, if I'm struggling with the whole outcome, 
I will obviously still focus myself, my own personal work on NFTs, but I would love to do more NGO work on the side because it's just fulfilling, man. It's uh, it, it really changed my life. So yeah, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. I would love that. Awesome, man. Well, everybody can keep up with Johan. See if those super rare pieces fly off and then wait for uh, whatever comes next. Be patient as you need to be. Yeah, man. It's guys like can, people in the space with like conviction like you, though, to, you know, take that initiative and, and you know, invest the time into, um, you know, creating, whether it's community based or, 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 you know, photography based for you. Um, I think it all comes full circle. And, you know, like I said, people with conviction are, are needed in this space. And, uh, it was good to hear from you and nice to meet you. So, um, well, thank you so much. I appreciate you guys. Thank you. Well, it was a huge pleasure. Will I, will I see you at uh, NFT NYC next month? I don't think we're going to make it. We have a friend's wedding to go to, unfortunately. Oh. <laughs> but it didn't coincide uh, date wise, but we're going to try to make it at some point. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, you guys are in Boston, right? Awesome. Yeah. yeah. Not too far away, but. Okay. Trains, man. We'll have to see if they'll let us write a blog or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're gonna work. Yeah, our check or do like a live podcast live podcast. See if they go for that. <laughs> oh yeah, that'd be great. That'd be awesome. Cool. Well, thanks a lot. I really appreciate that uh, that chat, and uh, thanks for the opportunity and for inviting me to the podcast. Uh, yeah, as I said, I've listened to a couple of episodes and. It's really great. Lots of insight. Lots of so I'm really honored that you you reached out to me. Really appreciated that. Awesome. It comes out um, a week from tomorrow, so in about eight days or so. Sweet. Sounds perfect. We'll be in touch. I appreciate the time. Thank you so much, guys. Enjoy the rest of your day. Yes. Have a nice night. You too. Thank you. Damn, that's nifty. single line. I sure as hell didn't know that. Fuck Render built the gallery to raise new artist popularity. What a guy. Man, man, it's good guy. Too much lag like a nomad. All his belongings in a single bag. All these things, can't you see? I learned all that's NFT. That's nifty. That's NFT. That's a nifty, nifty NFT. That's nifty, that's NFT That's a nifty, nifty NFT That's nifty, that's NFT That's a nifty, nifty NFT That's nifty, that's NFT That's a nifty, nifty NFT Damn, that's a nifty NFT